Our Bible reading is Job chapter 19, and that can be found on page 522. That's Job chapter 19, page 522. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He has blocked my way so that I cannot pass. He has shrouded my paths in darkness. He has stripped me of my honour and removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I am gone. He uproots my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own family. Even the little boys scorn me. When I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. I am nothing but skin and bones. I have escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Have pity on me, my friends, have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. If you say, how will we hound him, since the, truth, the root of the trouble lies in him? You should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment.
Well, very good evening, everyone. If we've not met before, my name's John. It'd be really helpful if you can keep that passage open to Job 19. Let's uh, pray as we look at this together. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll. Father God, we do indeed thank you that we have your written word in front of us, that we might know you and know your Son, our Saviour. Help us, we pray this evening, to grow and to learn in the knowledge and love of him who is our Redeemer, our Vindicator. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, you might be uh, familiar uh, with the TV presenter. Uh, uh, he's also a conservationist, Chris pa- Packman. You should, uh, there he is. Uh, he's on the screen. Um, I remember him growing up from watching The Really Wild Show. Um, that's a bit of a blast from the past for some of us. It was on CBBC. Um, perhaps more recently, you would have seen him on Spring Watch, something like that. Uh, not that long ago, he sued uh, for defamation after being accused of defrauding the public in relation to donations to help rescue five tigers. And in May earlier this year, uh, the courts ruled that all those accusations were false and defamatory, and he was awarded £90,000 in damages. And after the ruling, Packham said it was a full and frank vindication of my innocence. A vindication of innocence, I think, is at the very heart of Job 19. If you were here this morning, uh, you would have got a flavour of what Job is about. Um, Do listen to John's talk this morning, um, and it will give you a little bit more insight to that. It is perhaps one of the most unique books of the Bible. Uh, In his commentary on uh, Job, Christopher Ash says this, Job is both intense and overwhelming. Intense because terrible sufferings are vividly recorded for us and overwhelming because it is is a long and heavy laden with difficult poetic speeches. Someone may come to Job expecting to find general answers to questions about human suffering, but caution is needed. Job is no every man. He is most definitely a believer and a worshipper, a man who rightly fears God and turns from evil. He suffers because he is a worshipper. Job concerns the undeserved sufferings and trials of a man who belongs to God and trusts in him. That doesn't mean to say that Job was sinless, But in the Lord's eyes, he was upright and righteous, trusting in the Lord. Uh, Most of the book is focused on a conversation Job has with his friends. And in chapter 19, we come a fair way through that conversation. Uh, Whilst his friends hound him and accuse him that his terrible affliction is due to some awful sin... He's committed. John, uh, Job maintains he doesn't warrant such 
affliction. And yet in his dark musing of suffering, there is a momentary burst or gleam of light. With surprising certainty, Job proclaims that the Lord will vindicate him. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. I think there's much to take from this chapter. At first, it guides us on how we treat believers who are suffering. At second, it sympathizes with us regarding our own afflictions. Third, it gives us confidence of our own vindication before God. And finally, there is a warning of the sword of judgment hanging overhead. And you might have guessed it with four things. There were four points. The first is this. We have Job's frustration. Verses 1 to 6. Let's uh, Look with me, please, uh, from verse 1. Then Job replied, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? Ten times now you have reproached me. Shamelessly you attack me. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains my concern alone. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me, then know that the God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. I'm sure we've heard phrases like, it's karma, or you get what's coming to you. Uh, That was the worldview of Job's friends. It's what we might call a sort of doctrine of moralism. Uh, The righteous are always blessed. The unrighteous, well, they suffer. So as Job's state was so pitiable, he must have committed some egregious evil. In chapter 18, Bildad, one of his friends, paints a vivid picture of what happens to God's enemies. In a way, it's a picture of hell. And he coldly states, because of the way that you have suffered, you deserve this. I guess we might think of something like the Pharisees in Jesus' time that probably had a similar outlook on the downtrodden in society. But of course, this is not how Christians should think. Now, we must accept that sin often has consequences, and the wicked will ultimately face God's justice. But it is careless to tie suffering to sin, or specific suffering to sin. Nor is it right to link the magnitude of someone's suffering with the magnitude of their supposed sin. And I would say that we could say that sin is immeasurable or unmeasurable. Because there are times that the wicked seem to go unpunished and the innocent go on suffering. Even within the church, we know of incredibly faithful people who have faced awful suffering time and again. Uh, When I was studying at Theology College, 
uh, we had a whiteboard for people to, to write down their prayer requests. And time and again, I used to walk past the board and I saw the same people up there going through real struggles. It seemed like one thing after another. It was relentless. Now, I'd happily admit that they were far godlier than I was. And I just used to think, why are you going through so much compared to me? And such questions are almost impossible to answer. You see, suffering is not a puzzle easily solved. It is hard to have a right understanding of suffering, to comprehend it. And yet at the same time, we certainly shouldn't have a wrong understanding of suffering. And that was the issue of Job's friends. Their misunderstanding of suffering leads to the mistreatment of Job. And their harmful words cause Job to vent his frustration on them. Particularly Bildad's words are like the straw that broke the camel's back. In verses 1 to 6, Job laments, you torment me, crush me, attack me. Their words are like a sledgehammer dashing rocks to pieces. They have no shame in their deluge. Indeed, they're quite happy in exploiting Job's suffering for their own gain. If indeed you would exalt yourselves above me and use my humiliation against me. You see, the friend's misunderstanding of suffering leads to torment, to a lack of empathy and abuse. Trying to be moral, they actually expose themselves to be immoral and they are guilty of committing their own sin. And so the lesson is to not misunderstand suffering, otherwise it will lead to a cold indifference of our friends, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Wouldn't it be awful if a believer felt frustrated by our words when we speak into their suffering? I'm not saying that we would be so callous as the friends of Job, but we must certainly be wise and sensitive with our words. I suspect we're more likely to be in danger of being too glib. In our attempts to comfort someone, we rush in taking them to a place like Romans 8, verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, whilst that is true, the problem here is that people suffering might struggle to see that. How can God be for me when I'm going through so much pain? Sometimes it is best not to say anything. Or indeed recognise it is not always our place to give an answer. Job seems to make that point in verse 4. If it is true that I have gone astray, my error remains, my concern alone. See, Job can't see how he might have gone astray, but he knows that ultimately he has to deal with that with God and himself. He must work through that frustration of why God would allow him to suffer in this way. And I think that's true for us too. 
We need to give people space to work through their frustrations. Allow time to wrestle with the Lord. Bring scripture in when the time is right, or we at least seem the time is right. Because we can't be in the business of quick fixes with suffering. But we can still help. Ask the friend what they need. Sit in silence with them. Pray for them. Maybe take them out somewhere. Don't be like one of, one of Job's friends, a source of frustration. Be a true friend, showing your love, care and compassion to them. So that's the first point, Job's frustration. Secondly, we see Job's affliction. This is verses 7 to 22. And those verses are really an outworking of verse 6. Job has described himself like a wild animal caught in God's net. This echoes what Bildad had said concerning the wicked. Chapter 18, verses 8 to 10, reads this. It says this, His feet thrust him into a net. He wanders into its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel. A snare holds him fast. A noose is hidden for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. See, we get the picture that Job is being treated like one of God's enemies. And yet he maintains his innocence. God has wronged me. He is the one behind all this. In verse 7, Job says, Though I cry violence, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. Job is like a man being robbed in the street. He cries out violence, but no one answers or helps. Surely God is the one who comes to the aid of the afflicted. But he is the robber, and there is no justice. God seems not to care that Job is being mistreated. And rather than being a help, he is a hindrance, blocking his path and obscuring his view. Job is floundering to find direction and purpose in his life, which seems to be going absolutely nowhere. Perhaps you have felt something similar in your own experience of suffering. Job would sympathise with you. Uh, The predominant image in verses 8 to 12 are that of a sort of fortified city being sieged. Uh, Like a king deposed, Job is stripped of glory and crown. He is degraded, losing all dignity. In a sermon on this chapter, the rector Vaughan Roberts likens the image of the boxing legend Muhammad Ali. Once the king of the ring, the conqueror of the squared circle, floating like a butterfly, stinging like a bee, he was a man full of confidence and vigour, and yet years ravaged by disease left him a shell of a man shuffling onto a stage, trying to give out an award. We might think of a friend, once the life and soul of the party, 
But sadly, after severe illness, we visit them in hospital, seeing a shadow of themselves. Bedridden and frail, all dignity lost. That is how Job feels. Previously in chapter 14, Job has said that a tree cut down has hope of growing again. But when God has attacked him, he's been uprooted. It seems like there's no hope for Job. And God's attitude seems hot and personal. His anger kindled like a furnace against God. Against Job, sorry. He counts him as his foe. And the peak of Job's cry is this massive overkill of verse 12. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. His troops, all the armies of the Lord of hosts, come on together. They set up their siege ramp. It's it's quite a pathetic scene when you think about it. A huge army has set up its forces on all sides. And poor Job is on his own in his little tent, thinking, what threat can I possibly be to God? You know, it's like camping overnight, waking up to see you're surrounded by the entire British armed forces all pointing their weapons at you. It's an awful thing to have one's life invaded and broken down with no means of escape. Later in Israel's history, the inhabitants of Jerusalem experienced that more than once, didn't they? And Job's whole life feels like that. Perhaps yours does too. But not only has God seemed to have attacked Job, he's also isolated him from every sort of friendship, fellowship and partnership. He seems utterly alone. Uh, Look with me at verses 13 to 15. He has alienated my family from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My relatives have gone uh, gone away. My closest friends have forgotten me. My guests and my female servants count me a foreigner. They look upon me as a stranger. It's a terrible picture of dejected loneliness. All those Job thought he could rely on had deserted him. And it's not just that he realised his friends are superficial. Those closest to him, those loyal in friendship and affection have failed him. He's shunned, seen as a public disgrace, as good as dead. You know, he used to be the honoured master of the house. And now his former guests, his servants, treat him like a corpse. Even his immediate family are repulsed by him. Children laugh and ridicule him. It's such a horrible thing, isn't it? To be on the end of mockery and ridicule. Even when it comes from children. Such is his woe that Job cries out for pity to his friends. You know, it's bad enough that God is attacking me. Please don't do it too. And again, some of this may well resonate with your own experiences or how you feel. You know, you've had fair-weather friends who quickly disappear. 
maybe even family. Not necessarily they're sort of trying to be unkind, but they just don't know what to say. Better just say nothing, just ignore you. Eventually they avoid you, leave you, forget you. Life moves on. As we've made the point already, no brother or sister in Christ should ever act this way. But even when you're with people, you might feel isolated too. You know, others get excited about things, don't they? They get excited about the holidays, the football, the rugby. But you can only see through the prism of your suffering. You see, there's much to sympathise with Job in his sufferings. He is a man of faith, not perfect. And he hasn't gone through the mangle of affliction unscathed. You know, how much harder would it be for us to relate to him if his faith was still in pristine condition after all that he had gone through? It would be a completely unattainable and demoralizing example. You see, Job was grappling honestly with the paradox of an innocent Suffering. Someone who is faithful towards God. His faith was tested. He questions God. He cries out to God. He accuses God. And I think there is allowance for such things when we are afflicted too. But what Job does not do is curse God. We saw some of that this morning. Job, he can't see the bigger picture. He knows that the Lord is the root of his afflictions, but does not understand why he's doing this. But his faith in God leads him to the truth that his affliction is not out of malice or spite. He will not profane the Lord's name. Again, as we saw this morning from chapter 1, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And quite remarkably, Job's faith leads him to make an astounding confession of certain hope. And this leads us to our next point, which is Job's vindication. Look with me from verse 23. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool of lead or engraved in rock forever. Uh, If we think back to that beginning story I mentioned, the reason Chris Packen sued was to prove his innocence against his accusers. He wanted to be vindicated. And no doubt he has probably physical documentation to show that. And Job also longed for a lasting record of his own innocence or vindication. His vindication written down that would survive even his death. A written scroll. Even better, an inscription on lead. Perhaps even better still, an engraved rock that will last forever. It would be his words recorded against his friends. 
the words that concern the final verdict of his life. Their words. Unforgiven sinner, paying the penalty for his sin. His words. A righteous believer who trusted God and walked by faith. See, the words that win will determine Job's future. These are the stakes. But the longing for an eternal vindication needs more than an inscription on rock. Over time, the elements erode, even something so lasting as that. And so Job takes an almighty leap from a a desperate yearning to faith-filled hope. Verse 25. I know that my Redeemer lives. And that in the end he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. These are probably some of the most well-known verses in the Bible. Uh, Partly due to their included in an aria in Handel's Messiah. Uh, but they are also some of the trickiest to work out too. And uh, that's exactly what the sort of commentators seem to suggest, and uh, I've been certainly wrestling with it over the last few weeks. Now, it seems that Job knows three truths. He has a living redeemer. The redeemer will stand upon the earth, and Job will see him with his own eyes. So first, this living Redeemer. Uh, This living Redeemer was tied by a covenant, typically a relative, who was called when you were wronged or in need. I guess it's the same idea as we would find in the book of Ruth with that uh, that idea of a kinsman Redeemer. Uh, You may notice that in the footnote, there is this word, uh, there is the word, that this word also means vindicator. And so Job is confident he has a redeemer or vindicator who lives, most likely meaning who lives forever, compared to that transient inscription on stone. Job has already hoped for a heavenly advocate to speak to him. Uh, You see that at the end of uh, chapter 9... Uh, chapter 16. But here we have a greater vindicator. Again, Christopher Ash says that this Redeemer can be none other than God himself. This Redeemer must live in an absolute sense, and he must be able to stand for Job as an equal before God, for he is Job's accuser. No one less eternal than God or of lower status than God will suffice. Now, this is not the logic of uh, the sort of logic that the religious or philosophical, that's easy for me to say, uh, you know, uh, philosophical, there we go, that's the one systems can cope with. And so this seems like a, a paradox, but this paradox is ultimately true. You see, it's one of the richest ways is how Job, actually along with 
the Old Testament does not make sense without the triune God. So the sufferings of Job foreshadow the sufferings of Christ, in whom God is for us. Martin Luther put it like this, God loved us even as he hated us, as man is both justified and sinner. God is both redeemer and judge. Uh, Second, we see that this redeemer will forever stand on the earth, literally upon the dust. Uh, This might be a a reference to Job's grave. Uh, The language of stand refers to a, a witness standing in court to bear testimony. Far better is an eternally living vindicator who can attest to the character of Job than a fading tombstone. And third, Job knows that ultimately he will see this Redeemer God with his own eyes. Now there is uncertainty in this translation, but it seems that Job expects this to happen after his death. Verse 26, after my skin has been destroyed. See, Job has longed for the day he will be hidden in the grave. But he will be called in resurrection and brought before his maker. To stand before God means having right relationship with him, finally recognised and being vindicated. At the end of Psalm 17, King David cries out, As for me, I shall be vindicated and will see your face. And Job believes that despite what God has done to him, the Lord is his redeemer. I know that the God I have always trusted, feared and loved is related to me by faithful covenant. I am part of his family and people. Even if it is after my death, I will see my Lord. He will vindicate me so that it will be evident that I have been both righteous and blameless. See, this insight of Job is astounding. Now, we as Christians read these words and rightly say, Job speaks more truly than perhaps he knew. For our sovereign redeemer lives and he will one day vindicate all who have trusted in him. Our father God sent his son into the world to be the innocent believer who dies for sinners. Our God the son so loved us that he gave himself for us. Now it might take time to accept this. But every believer can confidently say, in Christ, God is for us. Nothing will separate us from Christ's love. And as we will sing in a moment, no power of hell or scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. How can we be certain of this? Well, there was, truly right, uh, uh, there was a truly righteous man whom God, in a sense, attacked. 
The Lord's wrath was poured out on him and he went to the grave. This man did not deserve such a fate. But the great Redeemer God publicly vindicated him when on the third day he raised him from the dead. It is the bodily resurrection of Christ that gives us such assurance that Job's confidence was not wishful thinking, but sure and certain hope. The Father stood upon Christ's tomb as his Redeemer to vindicate him by resurrection. The same God will stand upon the grave of every believer and act as our Redeemer. And on that last day, we will stand vindicated before him. The Apostle Peter writes of this in the New Testament. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, it seems like a, a sort of suitable high to land on, doesn't it? But the chapter doesn't quite end there. Uh, after this sort of bright burst of Job's hope, the, the darkness kind of returns. Uh, and in the gloom, Job rounds on his so-called friends. Uh, and this is the final point. It's, very sh- it's a bit shorter than the others. But it's Job's caution. Those final two verses. Let me read those. If you say how we will hound him, since the root of the trouble lies in him, you should fear the sword yourselves, for wrath will bring punishment by the sword, and then you will know that there is judgment. See, Job's friends have pursued him, believing his sufferings are because of his sins. They will not believe that his suffering can be innocent and even redemptive. There is no place for that in their morality for undeserved suffering or by implication, undeserved grace. They therefore stand in great peril, like the sword of Damocles in Greek legend. The sword of God's judgment hangs dangerously over all who think this way. They must heed Job's caution, for they are under God's wrath. As verse 29 says, they will know there is a judgment. They must realize the truth of undeserved suffering, for this will point them to the cross of Christ and to undeserved grace. Without that, they have no hope. And maybe Job's caution is what you need to hear today. Uh, Each of us who suffers or who cares for another who suffers might ask, why has this happened to me? Why has this happened to them? In desperation, we cry out, is God for me or against me? But sometimes it feels as though God is our foe, bent on making our lives a misery, 
to the point that we feel wounded and alone. But as we hear Job's faith in these words, we can bring our pain to Christ. Our life may feel like it's floundering or or fading, that we're walking in darkness. But like Job, we can shine the light of hope through that gloom. And we too can say with great confidence and certainty, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do pray that you would help each one of us in response to what we've heard. Help us, perhaps if we are finding life tough, if we think everyone is against us. May we know that we have a wonderful redeemer and vindicator in you. And may that give us certain and great hope that one day our Saviour will return and stand before us. He will vindicate us. May we know that certainty through his death and resurrection and look forward to that day when he brings us home. For your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. As we close our time, we're going to sing one.